0: Here at the Sociology of Everything podcast, we acknowledge the people of Ghana Yarta, whose land this episode was mainly produced on, and whose past and present elders we pay our respects to. Hi I'm Eric Sue. And I'm Louis Everest. And we're Lou and the Sue. And this is the Sociology of Everything podcast. Brought to you by UniSA. The university that presently employs someone that sometimes gets called Louise Vrus. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Very regular. I think I've been published under that. Mind you, it was for something that we wrote together. And I think you were Eric Sue
0: or something, weren't yeah. you? <laughs> I mean, it's not just that you've been miscalled something by students and colleagues. Yeah, it's in in an actual government document. We mm. had the opportunity, Louis, mm. as you mentioned, to contribute to a report commissioned by the Australian chief scientist. Mm. And I just really like the fact that in that document, you're acknowledged as Louise (laughs) Vress. That's right. Yeah. Maybe I was
1: embarrassed about it and I sent them a cheeky email at the end being like, actually, this wasn't Louise Vress. This was Louise Vress. Yeah.
0: It's It's not a very inventive pen name.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I should be a bit more subtle with it. So, what's the subject for today, Eric?
0: In this episode, we're going to have a chat about the work of another person who gets called Louise.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that was the transition. Uh, oh, prior to this podcast, you said you're either going to love or hate this transition, and I hate it.
0: <laughs> such a drawn out way to get into this. Oh, fair yeah, enough. We're going to have a chat about the work of Louise Amore, who is a political geographer working in the UK. And Amore's work is highly influential, not just in the field of political geography, but also in the field of sociology. And I think, first of all, that's something interesting for us to have a brief chat about, because you'd think that sociologists are only interested in works that are authored by other sociologists. Mm. But that's not the case,
1: mm. is it? No, I feel like we're quite a promiscuous discipline.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. The, the late UK sociologist John Ury once yeah. regarded sociology as the most parasitic of all the disciplines in the social sciences.
1: Yeah. Although I'll be honest, I feel like often we just describe things as social theory if you want to use them. <laughs>
0: it's
1: like, sure. oh, it's not political geography. This is just good social theory. <laughs> yeah.
0: Now, what is a more known for, not just in the field of political geography? But in other social scientific disciplines.
1: Well, she's known for a few different things. Amore's work on borders is very highly cited and the way borders are transforming and transitioning. But that work also is centered on the way technologies are changing political mm. and social structures. And Amore's work on the way technologies are impacting society has become extremely well-cited. She's recently written a book called Cloud Ethics, which looks at algorithms and the social and political impacts that algorithms have, and also how algorithms themselves are socially and politically produced, Mm. which has become a kind of leading book in the field, I'd say.
0: But we're not going to be looking at that text. We're going to be looking at an article of hers that was published in 2006 in the journal Political Geography. It's what put her on the map.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) And
0: this piece has the title Biometric Borders, Governing Mobilities in the War on Terror. It's got a crazy number of citations. Mm. Why have so many people found this text to be so interesting, to be so useful?
1: I would say, firstly, because it's so important. I myself have cited this text because it was a key text written in that period in the aftermath of 9-11 when governments were spending huge amounts of money yep. to bolster their security and change the way that they bordered people, change the way they assessed people as threats or not threats. And it more really captures that moment and looks at how governments are responding to 9-11 and how they're reshaping their borders with new technologies. And that's such an important subject. It's sort of a subject that impacts us all. Mm-hmm. Some of us more so than others, depending on Mm -hmm. who we are and our vulnerabilities.
0: But it's an important topic. So the context to this piece is that she's writing against the backdrop of the supposed war on terror that was launched by the Bush administration administration after the September 11th attacks.
1: Mm. And in fact, her case study in this article, the US Visit Program, is a technological system that's being deployed in the US's border as a response to the war on terror and as a way to try and increase security and increase the safety for, for the US citizens in the US state. That program itself, we don't even really necessarily need to discuss so much because the trends that she examines in this, the way that borders are being changed by technologies and particularly biometrics, it's kind of, you know, she's ahead of her time. It's, it's become commonplace now in Australia where we're doing this podcast. There's a whole range of systems that are incorporated into the borders which follow the same technological logic that she discusses in this article.
0: So the too-long-didn't-read version of what you just said is that <laughs> <laughs> this article is about how the border – has changed, how the border of nation states has changed in the aftermath of the September 11th tax and how that's linked to technological transformations and also social transformations as well.
1: Absolutely. I have to say it might help to take a step back first and just think about what the border is and maybe what a more traditional form of the border might look like,
0: the border of a nation state, right? In fact, you learn this in primary school. Yeah. When you take right. like a geography course, you mm-hmm. learn about the borders that separate countries from one another. Yeah.
1: In like international relations or maybe sociology, we might describe that as a traditional Westphalian notion of the border, which is this idea that borders can be mapped out on maps, Mm. (laughs) they can be Mm. drawn on maps, they're a static thing, they're an agreed-upon line, and they're generally determined by international agreements among states um, and by the ability of states to govern those borders. So that's a sort of traditional notion of the border. But over time what we've seen is that the way borders actually operate. The reality of the border Mm. has become increasingly distanced from that notion of the border. Mm. And technology has always been at the forefront of this. One thing I always like to think about is just how airplanes change the border. Mm. You don't experience the border of a nation state as you cross over that border, <laughs> when the plane flies over the boundary <laughs> of a state, someone doesn't walk down the plane and say, oh, we're crossing the border, you know, let's do customs now. Yeah. It's like, no, you experience a border at an internal site within a state, at an that's airport. Right. That has become the border location. Yeah. That's when you're bordered. Yeah. And that's another transition that a lot of social theorists have spoken about, how the borders change from a thing to a process. Yeah. People often talk about bordering. The border exists at that moment where someone assesses you and decides whether you're in or out.
0: Yeah. I can give you an example of that. Mm -hmm. Once I traveled from Canada back to the US and in the actual airport terminal, I was processed by a US immigration officer. (laughs) And they processed me and they said, have a nice flight. Welcome home. I was still in Canada. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's a really good example
1: and that process shows that where the border exists isn't just about it becoming more internal, it stretches out and reaches to people. People Mm. get bored in all sorts of different locations around the world. Anytime you fill out a pre-travel visa application form Mm. or if you're from a wealthy country, often you can get a visa waiver to go somewhere. But Mm. either way, you fill out some form. You're being boarded when you do that in your own home, in your own country prior to leaving. You're being assessed and boarded. Mm. And for some people, even once you enter a a new country, even once you go through customs, the bordering may not stop. You may keep on being boarded as you walk around that space and people ask to see your papers or people check your immigration status. You're being boarded every time. Time these things happen.
0: So what does this have to do with biometrics? What are biometrics, yeah. by the
1: way? So biometrics are physical characteristics that can be measured and used to define or assess a person. So Mm. it could be something simple like height and weight would be biometrics. Yeah. But then obviously things like fingerprints, palm prints, uh, iris scans, all of these things are physical characteristics that can be measured about people. And obviously, although biometrics have a long history, and particularly Mm. long history in how populations have been politically managed and yeah. sorted they've become increasingly important as technology has relied on biometrics because a technological system, say a system that determines the risk of people, can never actually understand people. Your computer doesn't actually walk over and shake your hand and say, hey, it's lovely to meet you, tell me all about yourself. (laughs) All your computer can do is take a list of characteristics about a human being, their biometrics, and Mm -hmm. develop a profile based on those biometrics.
0: Yeah, so when you try to cross over A national border, they'll ask you to take off your hat if you're wearing a face mask, (laughs) to take off your face mask. But it's more than that, isn't it? Yeah.
1: By the way, I always have to take my glasses off, but then I'm like pretty blind about them, so I can't see the screen that I'm supposed to be squinting at. (laughs) (laughs) It's very annoying. But yeah, that's exactly right. And that's because the system designed just to understand a set list of biometrics about you. Yeah. And you need to then let the system, you know, have that information. And already we can see some politics at play because we're already having to decide what biometrics are important to define a human being and then what those biometrics mean. So Mm. this bordering process, which on the face of it seems quite technical, actually is very political as well.
0: Yeah, so – This leads us then to talk about how borders actually use biometrics.
1: Yeah. And I think that brings us to a central point that Amore makes in this article, actually, because biometrics on their own, maybe they can be neutral in some way, <laughs> but the way biometrics mm. are used in borders, the way Amore describes biometrics being used in borders, is to create risk profiles about people. That's the way that the biometric border yeah. functions, by taking these characteristics about a person and then determining how risky that person is as a result. And that's the bordering process.
0: Yeah. And again, you could kind of see how this factors into the supposed war on terror. Mm. Because the goal isn't just to limit everyone's movement. That's something Amor observes. The war on terror is an anti-globalization. It, in fact, presupposes that it exists. But it needs to be able to determine who is a legitimate traveler and who isn't. Mm. Who should be allowed to enter various spaces and who shouldn't.
1: And that's why the technology of risk profiling based on biometrics has such a lure to governments and policymakers, because it's like they can have their cake and eat it too. Here's a way for you to scientifically determine legitimate from illegitimate travellers, legitimate from illegitimate forms of mobility. And at the same time, you can make it easier for what some mobilities people might describe as the kinetic elite, kind of the business people, the mm. people who should be able to travel round without yeah. any friction to move. And you can make it very hard for the risky people to move. (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So, yeah, I think that's sort of it in a kind of a bit of a nutshell. It's that the biometric border is the use of these new Mm. technologies to create a border that's no longer trying to govern a certain space, no longer trying to assess people as they cross over a certain boundary, but now trying to assign risk profiles to everyone and try and separate the legitimate travellers from the illegitimate travellers based on this algorithmic assessment of their biometrics.
0: Hmm. And it seems like the bordering process never ends.
1: That's right. And in fact, that's a really key point that Amore says about uh, the biometric border as well, is that we're kind of removing it from space and we're attaching it to people's bodies. We're now saying that those who are deemed risky, those whose biometrics are deemed to create a risky profile, they can never really cross the threshold of the border. border follows them as they move Mm. around. Maybe they're given some form of visa that's temporary in some nature, or they're asked to check in with authorities on a certain basis, Mm. or they're just more likely to be subject to fingerprint scanning and further assessment down the track. So the borders follow people. They attach their bodies.
0: And also, if you're deemed to be a legitimate traveler, you could actually fall into the category of the illegitimate traveler, the risky traveler. Mm.
1: Yeah, I, and that's a thing because the border's being fractured to some extent, because the threshold's being removed from space and being attached to bodies, it means the bordering process becomes an almost everyday and normal part of our lives. Mm. And it's important, this topic is something that quite a lot of sociologists and political geographers are writing about at the moment, have been writing about over this period. And it's not just a technical process. Mm. Um, if I could just mention one other person, sure. uh, Nira Yuval Davis, her book, which is, I believe it's called Bordering, looks at a similar process constructed by legislation. She looks how in the UK, there are laws that were brought in that force, say, landlords mm-hmm. to check the immigration status of people that they were renting <laughs> houses to. And she says that's an everyday form of bordering. It turns the landlord into a border guard. And there's all sorts of things we do on a daily basis that now involves everyday bordering. And in this article, Amor is looking at how technology is part of that process. Yeah,
0: And it's also not just about like biometric data and its influence on our experience of the border. Biometric data is also linked to all these other data sets that are digital in nature. If you make a quote-unquote risky purchase – Let's say you go online and you search for materials that can make a weapon. Mm. I'm sure you'll be flagged.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. And other theorists have referred to that as the kind of creation of your data double, this sort of digital shadow that's created about you and follows you around. And every time you get assessed, like we said at the very start, it's never actually Eric Sue who's getting assessed. It's a data double that's being constructed about Eric Sue that's being assessed. And like some of the other sociologists and, or social theorists or political geographers, Amore makes a point in this piece as well that there are a greater number of players involved hmm. in the bordering process yeah. – Early on in the article, Amor says that the techniques of authorization that allow the surveillance of mobility to be practised by private security firms and homeland security citizens alike. So if you think about the different people who are responsible for this biometric border, it's people in private companies that come up with mm. the different systems and algorithms and decide about what biometrics are going to be considered relevant how they're going to be assessed. It's all the people who are involved in recording those biometrics and feeding them into the system, mm. the process of bordering, the authority of bordering is being diffused across everyone that's responsible for the system.
0: Hmm. And interestingly, she says that this doesn't mean that the bordering process has become depoliticized. Not at all. In fact, she says that it's become even more political, Mm. that this is politics raised to the nth degree. What does she mean by that? Well, what I think she
1: means by that is that if we think about the process and the way the process of borderings changed, it's become this more invasive political part of everyday life. It's changed from the assessment of travellers as they cross the threshold of a sovereign state to being something that's constantly involved as, as people are Reassessed and the decision about whether they can be included or excluded becomes a part of everyday life. In this article, more, refers to one of my favorite <laughs> philosophers, although he's a bit out of uh, <laughs> sorts at the moment, old Georgia Ogarban. <laughs> <laughs> But Agamben's work around the sovereign exclusion of people and you know the central notion that at any point in time, any member of the political community could find themselves on the wrong side of a sovereign decision and be mm. excluded, more kind of points towards that and says that's what's happening when people are being boarded by biometric systems in an everyday basis,
0: mm. everyone's subject to potential exclusion. Yeah. It's like if you got the keys to a rental property – and you would think of the traditional border as the landlord assessing your application and saying, mm. all right, you're fit to live here. Mm. You now have the place for the next 12 months. We'll periodically check in maybe once every three months, but then that's yeah. it. And now the new bordering regime means that they are constantly observing you mm. and, and and constantly meddling and observing your life. And at any point, mm. if you do something sus, if mm. you – I don't know, don't put the exhaust fan on while you're cooking, you might be then deemed as a risky tenant and then (laughs) kicked out, right? Is that kind of what Amor is getting at here?
1: It is, but there are two important caveats. The first caveat, and actually, this is a bit of a criticism of Agamben's work more generally, by the way, although it's a side note that listeners can ignore if they want to ignore, (laughs) but... (laughs) is that not everyone is equally subject to potential exclusion. Yes. And I'll be honest, my data double, if I think about my biometric profile. Yeah, Louise
0: Russ. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, if it was Louise Russ, I think it would be a little less powerful or a little more likely to be excluded in many ways because <laughs> it's not. It's Louis Everest, uh, an Anglo <laughs> name. I'm a white male, uh, relatively well off. Yeah. You know, Never I, been convicted of a Never been convicted of a crime. No family members have been convicted of a crime. Yet. (laughs) That's right. And I can tell you, as I've learned a bit about bordering in my life, the data that's drawn upon when you're assessed at borders is things you don't often think about, like your security questions, for instance. Yeah. If you say that your childhood friend, you know, if you forget your password for the visa system and your security question is that my childhood friend was called Muhammad. Unfortunately, that's going to be pulled into your biometric profile, and because of certain racial prejudices mm. because of religious prejudices that have been found to exist in certain algorithmic systems, it can make you more likely to be boarded and A Moore talks about not that specific example um that is all my own <laughs> <laughs> but a Moore does talk about in this piece about how the risk that's born from this system is not equal, yeah, it's sort of like. As the general population starts to construct their borders by defining the risk of everyone, all of a sudden new risks are borne by people who may be minorities and who may be more likely to be bordered.
0: Hmm. Well, she makes that link that the system of bordering didn't just affect people that were suspected of carrying out terrorist acts. It also extended very quickly to people who were suspected of being illegal immigrants. Hmm.
1: And uh, I think I had a second KV as well, <laughs> which is related to that very point as well. And it's that there's another really powerful force at play in this transition towards biometric borders. And that's the discourse of biometric borders, the collection of ideas around them, because they have that sense of objectivity. They have the sense that this is science. This is a mathematical outcome. How could you dispute a risk profile when it's a high-tech computer coming up with mm. it? And that idea is used to reinforce the way these borders operate and to make it harder for people to challenge when they're unfavourably boarded? So that discourse, and she refers to it in terms of the kind of connection and integration of law and expertise and yeah. technology that together creates this air of objectivity around risk assessment and the biometric border. Mm. But it's a fallacy, right? Because every single data double, every single biometric risk profile is just a single interpretation of an individual. Mm. There are so many different ways we can interpret individuals, but the difference is that someone's biometric profile is presented as the definitive way to understand them. <laughs> yeah. Within the system, it's it's presented as the objective way to assess whether someone is a risk or not, and it's not honestly described as just one potential way to understand that
0: person. I really like this piece because it shows how nuanced Amora is trying to be in her analysis of the biometric border. In talking about how biometrics transforms our experience of the border, she also doesn't want to perpetuate the idea that biometrics can fully capture what a person's all about. There's sort of an incompleteness that she wants to attach to biometric systems and biometric technologies.
1: Yeah. And in fact, that is the primary way that she thinks that we can resist these systems. It's about Forcing the knowledge onto people that every output of a biometric system, and in fact, this is part of her work in cloud ethics as well, every algorithmic output is inherently incomplete, is inherently one take. On Whatever the output's on. And so she says we need to really force the notion that there's uncertainty in this system. (laughs) Every Mm. risk assessment score is just one interpretation amongst many possible interpretations about an individual. And it's about
0: acknowledging that uncertainty. Now, this leads us to a segment we like to call, Say What?, <laughs> <laughs> where we examine a quote in need of further explanation. Louis, you have one for us. I do. This is from the conclusion, and
1: I think it just summarizes a lot of what I'm more saying in this piece quite nicely, or at least hmm. two of the key points. Uh, this is, the biometric border signals a dual move in the contemporary politics of the war on terror. A significant turn to the scientific and managerial techniques in governing the mobility of bodies and an extension of biopower such that the body, in effect, becomes a carrier of the border as it is inscribed with multiple encoded boundaries of access. So I really like this quote because it highlights a fact that one of the key transitions that are occurring to borders as they turn into these biometric borders is really their focus on bodies. They're shifting from managing the kind of regions of a territory to deciding whether a certain body can be included or excluded and coming up with categories of human being centered on people's bodies and biometric profiles.
0: Hmm. I think one of the most insightful things about this article is that the consequences of the use of biometric technologies isn't just limited to what happens at a borders and customs station Mm. at an airport. It's kind of affected so many other aspects of our lives. There's a sense in which we need to check ourselves when we're in certain spaces. We need to make sure to walk and not run, Mm. for example, in places where we're being monitored. Mm. We need to make sure that Our risk profile is such that we can continue to travel in the ways we want to travel. Mm. And so, again, this piece is not really just about the border. It's about broader changes in the way we live our lives. Absolutely. I think Louis, or should I say Louise? (laughs) (laughs) Louise (laughs) Briss. Louise Briss. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thanks, as always, for listening. We'll catch you in the other episodes. Thank you. The Sociology of Everything podcast is created and hosted by Eric Sue and Louis Everest. It's produced and edited by Eric Sue, with special assistance from UniSA Online and UniSA Justice Society. To learn more about studying sociology and other exciting programs, online or in person, at the University of South Australia, visit unisa.edu.au, where you can search for more details. The Sociology of Everything podcast is primarily produced on the lands of the Ghana people, The hosts of the podcast would like to pay their respects to elders past, present, and emerging. The opinions expressed in the Sociology of Everything podcast are that of the hosts and guest speakers. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions of anyone at UniSA or at the institution at large. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more about the podcast, then visit our website at sociologypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.